we are falling into the traps that have been set for us, the potholes of not seeing things as they are, but seeing things as we've been socially conditioned to see them. It's Maria from Cooler Earth, and this is Now What, a special season of our podcast where I'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who are doing the work and being very intentional about how they find new and engaging ways to communicate the challenges we currently face and just as importantly, the opportunities, ways forward and reasons for hope. Today, I'm sitting down with one of my favorite people, Dr. Atia Martin. She's the former Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Boston, a certified emergency manager with over 15 years of experience in the fields of public health, emergency management, intelligence, and homeland security. She's also the founder and CEO of All Aces Inc., a consulting firm here in Boston with a mission to further critical thinking in advancing personal and organizational resilience. Dr. Martin, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you and I'm very grateful for you taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it, my dear. You've done a lot in your life and have a beyond impressive career. I think if I were to read your full resume, it would take up all the time we have. So why don't you give me some of the highlights of your career? Sure. So I'd probably say the most important thing about me is my family. My husband and I both grew up in Boston and we have five children together, two still at home. And uh, my career really has um, been a reflection of uh, a lot of the lessons that I have learned from being a parent. Uh, and, And what I mean by that is what it means to Uh, navigate the interpersonal dynamics, different personalities, and as well as the realities of different forms of oppression and how they show up all throughout our culture and how easily they infect us and infect the way that we engage with each other and how we see ourselves. So uh, my career started, uh, my career in government started with the military in uh, intelligence. So I was a Serbian-Croatian linguist assigned to the National Security Agency as an active duty Air Force member. Um, When I came home from the military, I did some work with the FBI and the Boston Field Intelligence Group. I worked in the Mayor's Office of Emergency Management. Um, So we would activate the Medical Intelligence Center to respond to uh, emergencies in the city, um, small and large. There isn't an emergency that doesn't impact public health. Um, And so that was everything from trolley crashes to the marathon bombings to uh, four weeks of snowstorms in 2015. So the whole range of emergencies. And then I ended up as the chief resilience officer for uh, the city of Boston, appointed by Mayor Martin J. Walsh and as part of an initiative started by the Rockefeller Foundation called 100 Resilient Cities, which is now its own nonprofit organization. Um, And that work focused on embedding um, how do we advance racial equity as we build our city's resilience and identifying as our city's biggest um, resilience challenge. I want to talk about the role you just mentioned as chief resilience officer. So for those who might not know exactly what that means or entails, Resilience, broadly speaking, refers to a system's ability to bounce back from shocks or stressors without losing its core capabilities. This can be applied to cities, countries, and even individuals or organizations. In Boston, as you just mentioned, 
you made racial equity a key part of resilience planning in understanding that historic racial inequities have resulted in a system that disproportionately impacts Black and other minority residents of the city, and that these inequities ultimately erode the city's overall resilience and ability to bounce back from shock. That is not a conventional approach at all. How, how do you think that was received um, when you made it a key, a key pillar of your plan? It is definitely not a conventional approach, <laughs> but I think it was it was well received in general, right? I think some people needed to needed some education to connect the dots between resilience and racial equity because it's not some, because it's so unconventional. But once you connect the dots for people, it's easy for them to understand that relationship and connection and to be motivated to want to do something about it. And so for the most part, it was well received, but after a lot of education, because people just had a hard time connecting the dots between the two. And you layer that on top of the fact that most people don't understand what racism is and how it works and the fear of talking about it. So helping people kind of overcome uh, those challenges so that they can actually be in true dialogue and problem solving with us. You've also spoken about racism as it relates to climate change. It's not necessarily intuitive to think of these two issues as related, but you've made a case around both the similarities in how we conceive of racism and climate change in an individual level, but also how these problems are interconnected. Can you talk to me a little bit more about this? What I was hoping to accomplish was for folks to take a more sophisticated approach to thinking about climate change and not not as an isolated phenomenon unto itself that we had to tackle, but something that is very much connected to our everyday lives, right? So if you're using that resilience approach, you're connecting the dots between the current state of affairs in a, in a society, in a community at any given time, not just the physical and environmental stuff, but also the social elements. And we can't claim that we're really uh, working fully at, uh, as our best selves into our fullest, fullest and most optimal capacity on climate change if we're not embedding these other realities into the discussion. Otherwise, we what ends up happening is we perpetuate racial inequities and other inequities that impact lots of uh, marginalized groups in our society, obviously unintentionally, but still that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of stepping our level of thinking and understanding of the complexities of our lives and society and that the people who suffer the most from disasters, from climate change, in everyday life, just in terms of um, the day-to-day struggles, those are all the same people, right? Those are our most vulnerable groups among us who are already marginalized. And so the connection to climate change and racism is when you look at all of the the inequities that we see in our society, whether it's health, wealth, education, all those things, we see that there is a direct, um, and this is based on the research, we see that the biggest social determinant of health is race. And not just because people of color are more prone to being poor and all these other things just in their own behavior, but that there is a larger um, context that we're missing, the historical context, 
the social context and that we've constructed our society in a certain way intentionally at first and now we don't need to be intentional about it it just as a system it just functions just by us living our lives and doing what we normally do when we're not being intentional about addressing inequities um and so climate change is a topic that everyone is um, having these conversations about, and people want to take action and do justice by it. It is also easy to take certain actions from a policy perspective, from a community organizing perspective, that leaves people out of conversations, that leaves people holding most of the burden of those policies and approaches without us meaning to, but that's what happens um, in in the, these different systems and forms of oppression um, is that it doesn't take us to uh, be proactively trying to reinforce them. It's part embedded in everything in our lives and it takes work to be able to understand how they work and to be able to, to see it when it happens and to be able to be proactive to prevent it from happening and to actually advance equity, meaning um, we're actually looking at ways to, as we're addressing issues of climate change, we're also thinking about the other benefits that we can be baking into solutions that also help address the day-to-day -day struggles of people in our communities. To me, that is what is so fascinating about the resilience approach to thinking through these challenges and future threats. It's that we're able to reconceive and rethink of the systems to build them not just stronger in the event of a shock, but better for people who live in them day to day. That being said, because this is such a more nuanced understanding, in the case of thinking through climate impacts being disproportionate on certain communities or people who are already vulnerable, it introduces a layer of complexity to a conversation that people are already apprehensive of having. It kind of forces us to understand our own role and responsibility within those systems of oppression. That's certainly not an easy task. One of the things that I have appreciated most about you is your extraordinary ability to start engaging people and having these very difficult conversations, not in a way that feels patronizing or condescending, but in a way that meets people where they are with no judgment, but overwhelming positivity and even lightness at times. Can you tell me a little about where you think that comes from and what are some lessons that you've learned along the way doing this work? Mm. First of all, thank you for that wonderful compliment. I really appreciate it. And that's a great question that I don't know if I that I've consciously processed, but I will take a shot at it. I think part of it <laughs> over the years I have learned that sometimes we forget that we are just people, right? We're people, we're flawed, and everyone is coming at different issues from different experiences and perspectives. And that for the most part, many of us uh, have not been taught critical thinking, how to analyze sources and information and synthesize it and all the stuff that um, a lot of nerdy people do. But even in those nerdy circles, the layer of critical thinking that gets left out is the humility part to acknowledge that we use these methods these structured methods, because we are flawed human beings that have been socialized to believe certain things about different groups of people. And so if we don't acknowledge that people are coming from different places, there's a, a, gr a grouping of quotes that has been really helpful for me in this context. 
The first one is, if it's not your struggle, it's invisible to you, right? And so me always keeping that in the back of my mind when I'm engaging with people makes it easier for me to be developmental with them in a way where um, I think I'm respecting their humanity and allowing them to have some dignity as we walk through something that's complicated and that we don't normally talk about in both racism and climate change. And then I think the other quote that builds on, if it's not your struggle, it's invisible to you, is you have to believe it to see it. And so if people fundamentally don't believe that these things are real, that climate change is real, that racism is real, then you know there's not going to be any action taken. But that also means that when people do have the understanding of, of the facts and reality and all these things, and they therefore believe, then it's easier for them to see the connections, the complications, or the, co- the complexity of things, as well as to be able to start to see, or at least acknowledge, and bear witness to other people's struggles, so that as we're making complex or really difficult decisions about how we move forward collectively to address these different challenges, that we are able to do it as our best selves, that we're managing ourselves, that we're using frameworks and tools to manage our thinking, and that we're just, we're being honest and respectful of each other in our growth and where we are, that we're all in different places. And even for us folks who are further on the spectrum of understanding, whether it's climate change or racism, we have to have humility too, right? So we have to have humility that at one point we were those people we didn't know all this stuff. We weren't all born with all of this knowledge. Like we worked at learning about climate change and how it's going to impact people differently. We had to work hard at learning about what racism is, how it works, how it impacts us. And everyone hasn't had the privilege because it is a privilege to be able to advance your understanding around these issues. And it takes a lot of work. So that's usually where I try to come from, from a place of understanding that we're in different places, understanding that it takes time for people to understand these things and not just understand them, but to internalize them, to see themselves in these issues and to be able to see where there's hope and opportunity to take action, to shift the current direction of where we're headed if we keep doing the things that we've been doing. As you just mentioned, it's also important to recognize that the availability of time and resources it takes for people to be able to think through and begin working on these issues um, is limited. It is easy for someone who knows about this stuff and has been able to access the resources, the literature, the knowledge, either educating themselves or through a formal education. But there's a big gap right there. How do you think we can begin to broaden the conversation and make it more inclusive? That's a great question. So I think the an interesting tool that we've been using um, as part of my consulting firm, All Aces Inc., is a power analysis. And it's been really helpful in helping to tease out these types of questions of who's not at the table, right? Who doesn't have the resources? Who doesn't have the information even to participate in certain things? But also respecting that there's also strengths and that there are people in communities, in their own communities who do understand these things, who are advocating. They're just not part of the same cohort of people who have more resources and more time to advocate 
for their communities. So I think there is a, a lack of understanding of both of those things, that there are people who don't have access to resources and information that to help them make better decisions, but also even the people who do have that access aren't always welcomed into the circles where there are predominantly white and predominantly middle class and upper class people who are leading um, on the climate justice uh, issues. So how do we close that gap, right? And it means that people have to think about the framing of the issues differently, and we have to look at the power dynamics, right? So where are you having meetings? Are they accessible to people, right? Did you partner with anyone? Are you also going, um, taking your work to people? Are you making sure you're not being paternalizing and talking down to people about these issues, right? Again, holding on to our humility while we engage with other people so that we're respecting their dignity um, and our own dignity for that matter. So I think there's lots of uh, opportunities for folks to slow down and think about ways to maximize the collective energy around these issues so that we can have bigger impact. Definitely. And I think one of the challenges that has been persistent in this movement is how flawed communication has been, specifically in terms of making the issue of climate change and equity inclusive and personal in a way that moves people to action. In what ways do you think the way we communicate these issues should change to correct for this? I would say, number one, stop trying to depersonalize things. We have a tendency to want to, you know, make things less emotional, less personal. But these are emotional issues and they are personal. And to try to approach these issues from a framework where you're invalidating the emotionality and personal nature of it is to dehumanize people who are on the receiving end um, of the burdens of both racism and climate change and other forms of oppression. So, so that's the first piece, right, is to acknowledge that. Um, I think the second thing is to simplify um, there's actually a quote. I do not often quote Warren Buffett. However, he has a concept that I think is really powerful. So everyone has heard of the golden rule, right? Where you treat others how you want to be treated. But he has the platinum rule, which is treat others how they want to be treated, which is a higher bar. That's a higher standard. And it requires you to actually get to know people, learn about their communities, learn about yourself and be able to actually partner with people in real meaningful ways and not in a in paternalizing, you know, come play in my sandbox for a little while until I get tired of you, meet me where I am, as opposed to um, partnering with one another on these issues. And, um, and then the, the last thing I'll say is uh, the opportunity to use a racial equity lens, to be really explicit about what you're doing. If this is important to the work you're doing, which I propose that it's important to all of our work, if we are really truly saying we want to have a society that's resilient to climate change, then we can't have only some of us and only some of the infrastructure being resilient. Do you think people are scared to look at the data by race and disaggregate it to approach this explicitly as a racial equity issue? Absolutely. 
because again, we don't have conversations. Well, I'll put it this way. We have conversations all the time about race and racism. We're not having very sophisticated conversations about race and racism. And therefore people don't fundamentally understand how it works. They don't understand really what it is, how they're participating in it unintentionally. And in some cases intentionally. And so it makes it an uncomfortable conversation for most people to have. And so soon as that word comes up, there's research that's very clear that shows that there are pe- people have a physiological reaction to when you bring up race and racism, right, in their bodies. That's how uncomfortable we are with having these conversations. And so that's a long answer to a yes, <laughs> Um, definitely that we're we're afraid to to disaggregate by race for reasons that um, we all need to explore and deconstruct so that we can get past it. I want to talk a little bit about the role of individuals. We often think of issues that are as large and systemic as climate change and racism as being entirely outside of our immediate control. You have made the case that quite the opposite is true that we each participate willingly or unwillingly in these systems that perpetuate the problem. It takes quite a bit of humility to begin to accept and understand that. How do you see the role of individuals in creating a better and more resilient future? You kind of hit the first point, that humility, right? And in order to develop humility, I think we need to be able to understand Mm -hmm. why we do the things we do and why we don't do some other things. And when we take the time to learn and grow as people to understand ourselves in those ways, it makes it easier to accept that we are not perfect. And it makes it easier to accept that we actually, because we're not perfect and because we do certain things that we actually have to manage ourselves And if we are not managing ourselves, we are by default perpetuating inequities, right? When we're not conscious about these things, when we're not taking action and managing the ways that we think about things, which impacts the actions we take or don't take, uh, we are falling into the traps that have been set for us, the potholes of not seeing things as they are but seeing things as we've been socially conditioned to see them. So to understand that piece and to see that we have agency, there are lots of things we can do as individuals. The challenge is when you're dealing with issues like racism and climate change, they feel so big and overwhelming that it can be paralyzing for people to wrap their brains around as an individual, what do I do? But there's so much that we can be doing that can have some real powerful, positive impacts in both of those realms. We have to be able to connect the dots between our individual responsibility and when we walk through the doors of organizations and institutions to be able to connect the dots with how we then develop programs, how we then develop policies, how we then allocate resources to make more critically analyzed and thoughtful um, decisions because there are real people on the other end of the things we do, whether they're our, our team we manage, our, our entire department, our entire organization. But how we are as individuals doesn't change because we're, we walk through the doors or the threshold of our organization. We're still the same person. That's why this is so important. 
that's why we're we're all part of this system. Organizations exist because people exist. Mm-hmm. We created them, but we hide behind them. In in many cases, uh, when people are talking about these issues and they're railing against the system and all of these things, it's like we also have to be having these conversations with ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> as part of that system that we're frustrated with. I'm curious to hear how you think these conversations have changed or evolved at all during the course of your career. Wow. I think since the beginning of my career, I think <laughs> climate change has been thrown around as a word that more frequently than racism and racial equity, but not being directly connected to action, right? We were we spent a lot of time like trying to figure it out. What is this? What are the impacts? What does all this mean? Which is an important part of the process. And so I've seen us get a lot better and more sophisticated at um, doing those types of analyses. Race and racism is still showing up more now and in the, over the last several years um, than it has been. And even before President Trump was in office. And so I think um, there's been progress, but not in the types of meaningful ways on the racism side um, that there needs to be. I, I remember even I, someone who wasn't as knowledgeable as I am today about issues of racism, but having a pretty high level, I'd probably say above average understanding in um, ways that I contextualize things. Um, I still, there were times uh, in my career where I felt uncomfortable bringing it up. Even building the language, building my own comfort in being able to bring this, bring these issues up in spaces where there are cases where I might be the only woman and the only person of color in the room. So I, I think even my own growth over the years and being able to stand uh, firmly in bringing up these issues in spaces where I have the privilege to be in, where other folks are not in, and have the ability to speak up on these issues um, and, and try to bring um, those voices and concerns into the room who otherwise would not be there and decisions would be made that would adversely impact them, again, even with nobody meaning to. But the way those things happen, you know, happen because there's no intentionality around advancing equity and addressing racism. And as long as it's not intentional, we see the same types of perverse and equitable outcomes for people of color and other marginalized groups in our communities. But addressing and correcting for these flaws has to begin with acknowledgement of the very fact that they are actually flaws and issues. What about people who are straight up deniers, who do not believe climate change exists, or who believe racism is a thing of the past that doesn't exist anymore? Who might say, you know, I don't even see color, which is usually the response when someone gets confronted with some of these issues. How do you begin to engage with them? Should you even try to do so? Absolutely, and we have to, because a lot of it is a combination of fear, discomfort, ignorance, and lack of self-awareness on what we're actually talking about, right? Because if someone says, I don't see color, I automatically know where they are in their understanding of these issues and that they don't really understand them because it's impossible not to see color. Our brains are not wired that way and we're not socialized to not see color. And so 
I think we have to, the folks who do understand these issues, regardless of what your race is, um, have to be able to have language to help people get beyond the level of understanding they are at now to something um, that allows them to be in these types of more complex conversations around problem solving around these issues, right? But in order to be a part of problem solving, you actually have to understand what the issue is you're problem solving for. And so that means we have to take the time to um, educate people. And I'll be quite frank, you know, as a Black woman, it is unfair in the larger scheme of things to always have to be the one to speak up on these issues. But I channel um, Paulo Freire and James Baldwin and other greats who have been thinking and working on these issues long before Tia was even born, who have been very clear that that is part of our responsibility as the people in the receiving end of these inequities, as the people who are being oppressed in these situations, that we have to be at the forefront of our own struggle to um, help educate people so that so that we don't have to keep doing it. Right. If you do it and you give people the context and information necessary, then they can do it for themselves and do it for other people. Right. So a white person who understands these issues can can advocate with other white people and the less that we have to keep stepping forward to do it ourselves all the time. The thing is to get to a place where we're actually talking about the real problems. You're highlighting the importance of deep and thoughtful understanding of issues that are so broad and complex. I sometimes think, however, that the way we consume information today might not necessarily be the most conducive to having these types of conversations. With, you know, the news cycle moving so quickly and social media promoting quicker consumption of news and information. How do you think this impacts our ability to take the time to do this work? Most definitely. Um, most of the activity happening is worrisome, um, but there is also uh, folks who have found creative, innovative ways to leverage the platforms of social media and, you know, being able to finesse language to get people to look at things they probably wouldn't normally look at to expand their own understanding of things. And the more that we understand how those things work, we can leverage the same types of strategies for things that matter and not just silly stuff. There's been a streak of anti-intellectualism in America for many years. I, I ironically, just uh, recently, I had pulled off a book from my shelf, one of my shelves, because I have a lot of books. <laughs> I read too much. And there's a book that came out in 1964 that was a Pulitzer Prize winner called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life by Richard Hofstadter. And if you read through that book, it reads a lot like the things that are happening today, just in a new form, wrapped in a new package called technology. So I'd say, yes, there are many dangers to it um, because it satisfies some of our baser um, instincts, right. more and more animal instincts, um, and not our higher level, our higher order ways of thinking, which is the benefit of being a human being. If I'm listening to learn and not to, to rebut, then I might even learn something about myself and I might even learn something that changes my perspective on things. But I can't do that. If I have no humility, if I don't see how I'm connected to other people, if I'm not learning about issues around me and not just sound bites I hear, but I actually understand the issues, 
I've done some reading on them, even if it's basic. I've looked at different sources on an issue that I claim to care about. And I don't just take positions because there are people in circles that I travel in that have taken those positions. In closing, and this is something I like to ask all of our guests, what makes you hopeful for the future? Oh, so much makes me hopeful about the future. Um, my children make me hopeful about the future. My two grandbabies make me hopeful about the future. When I do uh, my work with our consulting firm and I can see the evolution of people's thinking and understanding around things and their the improvement in their ability to critically think through issues in a way that can actually change policies and programs and practices. And in some cases, organizations that have huge impacts on large communities, sometimes citywide, that gives me hope because it has shown me, proven what we know from science and experience that people can evolve. What we know and understand about the world and our ability to take action and do things differently is incredibly um, tangible and real. And it can happen with even some folks that, you know, at first glance or at first blush, it seems like they are hopeless. Um, but I've seen the evolution of people when they have good information, good context, and someone is respecting them as a person as they're engaging with them with all of those things. Dr. Martin, thank you very much. I'm very grateful for your time and your intellect and the ability to learn from you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I appreciate you taking on this work and helping people to be more explicit in the approach to how we communicate better on issues of climate change and all of the intersecting issues related to it and opportunities for us to kind of practice what we preach and have meaningful impact in changing the trajectory of where we can be as a society, as people. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please share it with friends and colleagues and don't forget to give us a rating wherever you're listening. See you next week.